the impending Bragg prosecution. Are the banks safe in 20 years after Iraq? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the sage of Authenticity Woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National View podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is Ball and Branch Sheets. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim, we are recording as usual in our first episode of the week on Tuesday morning, which is supposed to be Trump Arrest D-Day, according to an all-caps two-part Truth Social post from Donald Trump himself. May not be today, but it does look as though this is happening. This was uh, the Stormy Daniels case that uh, was taken up by the Manhattan DA who preceded Alvin Bragg, Cyrus Vance, concluded this was not really a prosecutable thing. Vance took up a larger business case that Bragg, in turn, when he took over, took up. And then Bragg's like, no, this is not a prosecutable case. Then there was a reaction on the left to him dropping that case. And he's like, well, wait a minute. There's still this Stormy Daniels thing. There's a grand jury going on. It seems very serious. It uh, asked Trump to show up and testify, which of course he didn't, but that's usually the last step step before someone is indicted. And if Trump is indicted, he's going to have to show up in New York and get processed, which means fingerprints, mugshots, conceivably could get cuffed, although that's kind of hard to imagine. But obviously, this is a, uh, a an intense uh, partisan um, matter that will only get more intense when it actually, when and if it actually happens. What do you make of it? Um, I make of this bad for the country in a whole bunch of different ways. And one of the rare times where Donald Trump is, if not 100% right, largely right, that this is indeed a political witch hunt, that he is being judged by a standard that nobody else would be judged by. And that this is all, you know, whether you want to characterize it as a deep state or simply as ideologically obsessed political prosecutors going after him for who he is. Um, Local attorneys very rarely prosecute presidential candidates for violations of either state or federal campaign finance law, particularly over something like misreporting expenditures. When there is a legitimate claim of misreporting an expenditure, like, say, the Hillary Clinton campaign – hiring the Perkins Coy law firm to put together what became known as the Steele dossier and listing it as legal advice and services, uh, then it usually gets resolved with the FEC you know, ch- charging them a fine, the campaign, not the candidate. Um, so this is all going to be a felony, attempted felony conviction over falsifying business records. People who have dealt with this say, yeah, you could probably nail them on a misdemeanor on this, but this does not seem like, this is really stretching it to be a felony. Oh, by the way, in the state of New York, the statute of limitations for a felony charge of falsifying business records is five years. This occurred in 2016. 2016 plus five equals 2021. I've heard some people arguing that maybe it does. you don't count the time if the uh, target of the investigation is uh, outside of the state. Well, a lot of this case will rely on Michael Cohen. Listeners probably recognize that name. This is a man who in 2018 pled guilty to five counts of willful tax evasion, one count of making false statements to a bank, one count of causing an unlawful campaign contribution, and one count of making an excessive campaign contribution. Michael Cohen is a less than ideal witness. And of course, we've never had a former president indicted for a crime 
much like a misdemeanor. Now, if you work at National Review long enough, sooner or later you will have one, and sometimes you have multiple, colleagues whose names begin with David Fra. And it could be a David French, it could be a David Fromm. Well, all of the David Fras think that this is a very weak case, that this is indeed a case of political prosecution, and that there are much more serious investigations of Trump going on. And that, in fact, those much more serious investigations of Trump may well get damaged by this, because in this case, it really does look like a political witch hunt. So when you can't even convince the David Fruz of, of this, the seriousness of this crime and the deserving of the felony charge, then you're on really, really weak ground. Um, I don't know if this will necessarily be a huge benefit to uh, Trump and the Republican presidential primary. I do know this will make him the center of attention again, and it will give him something new to whine about that, you know, Ron DeSantis isn't protecting him by deploying the Florida National Guard to put a protective ring around Mar-a-Lago or God knows whatever else he wants or something like that. But in this case, Alvin Bragg is trying to set himself up, I assume, I presume for a gubernatorial run or something down the road by being able to say, I was the first one to indict Donald Trump. Well, thanks a lot, Bragg. Yeah, so Charlie, this is one of those cases where everyone is terrible. So this was a fair in 2006 that um, pretty obviously happened. Trump's lying about it, said it, it didn't happen because, you know, she's she's so unattractive. But the idea that Donald Trump out alone at a celebrity golf tournament wouldn't have done this with a 27-year-old porn star in her prime is, is obviously not very plausible. Then there's this completely sleazy payment, you know, this back and forth over the years with her and the National Choir, and finally they do this uh, payoff near the end of the 2016 campaign, and Trump's actually writing checks to reimburse Cohen for it while he's president of the United States. So none of that is good. And then, but you have, as as we've seen the last five years, the people who are supposedly most concerned with the norms willing to uh, twist and pervert the norms in, in order to try to get Donald Trump. And this is clearly, uh, in my mind, just a case that shouldn't be prosecuted and is being prosecuted for uh, political reasons. It's the kind of thing that Trump mused about to his great discredit when he was president, arresting uh, all his, his enemies. And that's what Alvin Bragg has the power to do and apparently is going to do here. I think it's important to separate out the question of this prosecution and the question of what this prosecution tells us about Donald Trump. The prosecution is clearly frivolous and pretextual. During his run, Alvin Bragg said he was going to prosecute Donald Trump. He didn't say for what. The presumption was that there would be so much there that he could just pick something. Well, that's clearly not true because the case that he has picked is weak. It's not just people on the right saying this, as Jim points out. I think Ruth Marcus in the Washington Post highlighted its weakness. There are statute of limitations questions. There is the question of whether anyone else would be prosecuted. I'm not a great fan of the construction the first time a former president has been prosecuted because it might become necessary to prosecute a former president, and I wouldn't want that person to be deemed to be above the law. I also don't want 
that person to be treated differently than would anyone else in the other direction. And it does seem to me that that's what's happened here. This would not rise to the level in other circumstances. The problem is that Trump did it. And although I don't think that he should be arrested and charged, he did it. He is guilty morally of cheating on his wife with a porn star and then trying to cover it up with his wealth. And that part of this story seems to be buried. That part seems to be ignored. And I don't think for most conservatives, for most of history, that would be the case. Normally, with anyone else, that would be enough to bury you. Sure, we could quibble over the prosecution, and I would. But we all know he did this, right? I'm surprised that that part of the story is being glossed over. And I'm surprised that people who pick up on all sorts of foibles and peccadilloes for other politicians seem to be giving Trump a pass on it. So, yes, I agree on the question of this prosecution. It is motivated and irresponsible. But let's not forget that if Alvin Bragg decided tomorrow to bring down or try to bring down Ron DeSantis or Glenn Youngkin or Greg Abbott or Tim Scott, he would be unlikely to be able to establish a fact pattern in which one of those people, while his wife and baby were at home, cheated with a porn star. And this is a good example of why you don't nominate for higher office people who have all sorts of skeletons in their cupboard. And it's not blaming the victim to point that out. Yeah, so no, one of the subplots here has been uh, Ron DeSantis. And Trump people have been saying, well, we, we need to hear from DeSantis or even that Trump that DeSantis needs to block <clears throat> an extradition to New York if, if Trump were to resist uh, sh- showing up, which would be a, a disastrous mis- mistake, and, and DeSantis is not going to make it. He made evident yesterday, but he addressed this when and when he was asked about it, and it was kind of a, a classic DeSantis answer in the mode we've seen the last several months dealing with Trump, because he he attacked the the prosecution. I think appropriately, everything he said was correct about Bragg as a source. Soros prosecutor who is hurting the people of New York with the soft on crime uh, policies, except for this, which he's undertaking because it's a political uh, prosecution, undertaking as a political prosecution. But then he got this kind of subtle, not maybe not so subtle, but passive aggressive dig in was like where, where he said in the midst of his answer, well, you know, I don't, I don't know how like paying off a point star with hush money works. I, I don't know anything about that, <laughs> which clearly was was getting to the point that Charlie was making about just the, the morally blameworthy underlying um, offense here by, uh, by, by President Trump and all, all the Trump people who were braying for DeSantis to address this freaked out 
at uh, this this line and his response. It was very sharp. It was practically British in its understatement, uh, and yet conveyed precisely what you wanted it to convey. The Trump world has been goading Ron DeSantis to engage with them for months in some of the most ham-fisted, scene-chewing efforts to goad him into the political fray, and he's not responded. I mean, to the degree that they're attacked, not only attacking his record on things like COVID or what have you, but Donald Trump is out there alleging that he's having affairs with underage girls, uh, that these are their, his allies are trying to file campaign ethics uh, complaints against him. They're, very, they're going very serious and very hard, and DeSantis has so far been above it. And then they solicit this from him. They say, why is Ron DeSantis, this is from uh, people in his orbit who are on staff, saying, why is Ron DeSantis keeping his mouth quiet about, or keeping his mouth closed about this? This is an attack on democracy itself. He needs to speak up. And he does. And they just milt. They have this attack of fragility that I haven't seen from Trump's allies, and I don't think ever. You had... Uh, Claremont Institute people like Paul Ingracia uh, likening this to uh, Lucifer's rebellion against God. And I am not making that up. That is his direct quote. MAGA war room uh, saying that Ron DeSantis has endorsed the weaponization of our legal system by saying this issue isn't something that matters to people. Paul, or, uh, Mike Lindell and Steve Bannon saying he's the Trojan horse we always thought he was. They're just exploding. And this was so subtle, it was so understated, that it makes their reaction that much more insane. The um, one bit brief thing about Bragg that I wanted to bring to the table here, because it's just so maddening. Uh, in the lead in Politico right now, very lead piece, and I caught it last night via reporter Erica Orden. The headline is, By the Book DA Confronts Unpredictable Opponent in Trump. And according to Erica, uh, Bragg, Alvin Bragg, is a, quote, politics-averse prosecutor who's just been dragged into this unfortunate set of circumstances by Trump's misdeeds. This is laughably obtuse, bordering on dense. The notion here that this guy is loiters above the progressive political fray is undone by his, quote, day one memo in which he said he wouldn't prosecute, you know, little things like resisting arrest and wanted to make armed robbery a misdemeanor. He's such a by-the-book prosecutor that he's trying out this extremely novel legal theory on the most monumental political stage possible. And in his campaign, he repeatedly said, talked about how he had sued Trump and the Trump administration and how he would take up this case that Cy Vance had uh, dropped the ball on. This was a campaign trail promise. It's in the record. And the idea here that you can retroactively condition us to forget the events of 2021 is insulting. So, Jim, I, I wrote about this today. I think what, what we're seeing uh, last couple of days and the contention over this uh, possible impending arrest is just a taste of what our politics would be like if Donald Trump actually won a second term. I mean, the, the freak out on the, the left would make 2017 look like child's play, right? They, they freaked out in 2017, before January 6th, before Trump tried to overturn the result of the 2020 election, before Trump got indicted. And this might be, uh, th this Alvin Bragg one, it just might be the first, you know, <laughs> there might be uh, one or two more. And then Trump, I mean, he said this, I, I'm about retribution, you know? So he denied on Hugh Hewitt that he actually meant that he's going to uh, actively seek revenge against all his enemies, but of course he will. Yeah. Uh, Trump also said something along the lines of the greatest threat to 
America and to the world are Americans, particularly meaning those in the Biden administration and folks like that. Um, not China, not Russia, not Iran, not North Koreans, not Al what's left of Al Qaeda, ISIS, or anything like that. I think this. I, th I take Trump. I, I think Trump genuinely believes that. I don't. You know. I don't think that's. You know. A rhetorical flourish. I really think he is much angrier at his domestic political opponents of all stripes than he is at any particular foreign dictator. And this isn't even going to rehash all of his, you know, comments about Putin during the campaign, things he said since the war has began, it's, and things like his desire to get a soybean deal with Xi Jinping, and all the praise he offered for Xi Jinping during the pandemic. Uh, you know, th this is the way Trump sees the world. He's not that interested in overseas threats against America. He'll bomb him if, you know, if he has to. But in the end, what really, you know, leaves him raging in all caps tweets, what really makes him angry and gets his blood pumping are people who disagree with him here in the United States. And that's what his second term will be about, retribution. He will be using the executive branch of the government to go after everyone who has wronged him. And as we all know, Donald Trump has a vast and expansive sense of who has wronged him. He believes Ron DeSantis has wronged him by not doing enough to stop uh, this, you know, indictment. You know, why? By, by, th by, think by thinking of running for president, he's wronged him. Yes, exactly. Yes. That this will, the Republican nomination is Trump's birthright until he dies. That is his philosophy. And, you know, that's an absurd, ridiculous way of looking at things. And you're kind of left scratching. Like, if the Republican Party doesn't like, – if this is what the Republican Party wants, like, then unsurprisingly, a lot of people are going to say, what the hell is the point of the Republican Party? Why would anybody want to be part of this? It's, it, it really is a personality cult. And if that's that, we have one organized, very hardball, cutthroat party on the other side of the Democrats pushing in the direction of progressivism. And on the other side, we have a cult of personality that cares more about when, you know, raging and fuming and venting their spleen than actually winning elections. And we're going to continue to lose elections every year that Donald Trump is the nominee. So, Noah, next question to you. I think all of us agree that Trump will get some sort of bump from this, but uh, register your dissent if you don't think that. But the question is, will it at the end of the day in February of, of next year help him actually win the Republican nomination, this and or any other legal action against him, yes or no? This is too hard a question to give you a yes or a no. It's... Uh I don't know. And we're in untested waters here, so this this demands some humility of us. I have not seen anything like the outpouring that we saw after the Mar-a-Lago raid, um, where there was some effort to, you know, say we need to renominate Donald Trump by acclamation to stick it to all the people that we don't like. The demands of the 2024 cycle are different from the demands of the 2022 cycle, and we're seeing a lot more reluctance and careful consideration on the part of Republicans so far. He's got no takers for his effort to drum up protests outside, outside, you know, various Manhattan venues. So I don't know. Does this get him one new vote is the question. And I can't see how it does. It certainly hardens her ex his existing support. But who does it convince who was previously persuadable that Donald Trump is, is going to be the guy who's going to advance our political prospects, not our effort to advance his prospects, He's going to help us. How? Um, this is a travesty, obviously, for uh, the American social compact and our American and American politics generally. But does this advance Donald Trump's prospects? I don't quite see how. I can see 
how it would make it harder to chew into his 30, 35% of the Republican primary vote, but I don't see how it grows it. All right. So I'm going to put that down as a provisional, very modest no. Charlie. I don't know because I don't know anymore whether Republican primary voters want to win an advanced conservative policy or nominate Donald Trump. All right. We have a, a despairing, I don't know, from Charlie Cook. Jim Garrity. I'm not too far from Noah and Charlie, but I will note, I you know, immediately after the midterms, when it became clear Republicans had not won the way they thought they were going to and that the Trump loyalist candidates, uh, everybody from Oz to Herschel Walker to uh, Cox in Maryland and uh, Mastriano in Pennsylvania, when it became clear that the Trumpiest candidates performed the poorest, you did see this sudden drop and you did see the sudden excitement for Ron DeSantis because he had won by such a uh, 20 points, this huge margin. And I do think it may add, the, the, you know, the idea of Trump being on trial, even if it's a uh, very weak case, as I discussed earlier. I think a certain number of Republicans who might have been open to Trump are just going to look at this and say, you know, there's just so much baggage. This is going to be really tough. We really got to beat Biden. We can, you know, relitigate all this kind of stuff, both literally and figuratively. And, by the way, by the way, Biden has been so both Biden and Elizabeth Warren have been using literally. Warren said that uh, Fed Chairman Powell had literally taken a flamethrower to regulations. No, he did not. I'm fairly certain Chairman Powell has never picked up a flamethrower in his life. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Sticks in my craws, you can tell. Um, I, I think that there may be not a lot. My guess is if you're supporting Trump right now, you're a diehard and you're really into him and you're really a loyalist. But I think there might be some small, you know, maybe one, two percent of them who look at this and say, this is just getting to be too much, too big a hill to push up too high a rock. Let's tr- uh, let, let's try, you know, let's uh, let, let's try to go with DeSantis, with who's a fresh start. New new, we'll be arguing about new scandals instead of different scan instead of the same old scandals. So I, I think it it helps them initially because it drives more attention. That usually is a good thing. Creates sympathy for him. That's a good thing. Reinforces his message, which is that we are victims and the other side doesn't play by the rules. So all that helps him in the long term, you know, over the next year, I, I think it probably doesn't wear well. So you know, I'll, I'll be provisional and, and modest as, uh, as, as Noah properly suggests, but my guess is no, it, it won't help him and it, it will, will be part of the massive accumulation of baggage that I, I do think will weigh on him over time, but I say that with some, with a little hesitation. I do not, with any hesitation, go to Charlie for a message from our sponsor this episode, Ball and Branch Sheets. Ball and Branch Sheets, which will help you wake up feeling rested and refreshed with the softest, most luxurious sheets from Ball and Branch. Ball and Branch is the bedding expert and they make the highest quality sheets with incredible craftsmanship. Each sheet set is slow made for an unmatched softness with 100% traceable organic cotton that gets softer with every single wash. And I know this because I sleep on ball and branch sheets every single night. And if you want to, you can too. It's pretty easy. You can get hold of the signature hemmed sheets from ball and branch, which are a bestseller for a reason. You can enjoy the buttery-to-the-touch, super-breathable feeling 
Perfect for both cooler and warmer weather, loved by millions of sleepers. And so, Leoxerius, they're loved by four U.S. presidents. Now, I think that was three U.S. presidents before. So since I last read this ad, another U.S. president has picked up ball and branch sheets and has loved them as much as I do. Maybe one of those presidents, or all four, gave one of the 10,000 raving reviews uh, and we'll never know, but they will have had to pick one of the 10 versatile colors in all sizes from twin up to California King that are designed to feel incredible for all sleepers that are made without toxins that are free from synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde and other harsh chemicals because ball and branch sheets fit the deepest of mattresses. They're labeled with top and bottom tags. So making your bed is easier than ever, even for me. And Bottom Branch will give you a 30-night risk-free guarantee if none of that appeals to you after 30 days. You can just send them back with free shipping and returns, but you won't, of course, want to do that. So if you too want to sleep better at night with Bottom Branch sheets with now four U.S. presidents, you can get 15% off your first order if you use promo code EDITORS15 at ballandbranch.com. That's ball and branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D branch.com. Use promo code EDITORS15. Some exclusions apply. See site for details. Get on with it now. Thanks so much, Charlie. So, Noah, we got a veto. I repeat, we got a veto. The first of the Biden administration, he vetoed this Republican legislation that made it through the Senate with a couple Democratic votes to overturn a new rule that would encourage so-called ESG investing. What's going on here? Uh, a tragedy, in my view. Uh, I don't, so ESG investing isn't necessarily a new concept, but the moniker is new. Uh, it stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Investing. And it's essentially what it sounds like. Um, it subordinates, it, it, it is an investment strategy that um, prior, prioritizes and privileges investing in companies that are socially responsible as progressives see them to be socially responsible. So ESG and equity uh, compels firms by withholding these funds um, to compel them to do progressive things, to subordinate merit to ideological concerns and hiring, to subordinate efficiency and productivity to climatological initiatives, to um, sacrifice return on investment to the advancement of the pro progressive project. Now, that's an inducement. And if that's your choice, that's your choice. I liken it to this iPhone charging feature, which, uh, allows, which allows your phone to charge at off-peak hours so that you're charging primarily when the grid is using... Um, uh, renewable sources, not fossil fuel sources, that's fine. If you want to subordinate, you know, when you want to privilege, you want to sacrifice some efficiency to this ideological concern, that's your choice. But it has an off button. The Biden department's, uh, Biden Labor Department's rule here doesn't have an off button. It allows retirement fiduciaries to invest in ESG funds, which allows them to sacrifice return on investment to ideological goals, to, to advance the progressive project in American boardrooms in ways that legislation doesn't allow them to do that. Uh, so they're essentially drafting American seniors into what I think is an extortion racket. The New York Times, when they were in analyzing this initiative, which, by the way, attracted the support of two Democrats in the U.S. Senate, 
um, said there would be no evidence that this initiative would lead to the disinvestment from the fossil fuel industry. If so, it's a spectacular failure. That's a core objective of this whole philosophical approach to investing. They also dismiss it as a pure GOP messaging strategy. They say, ah, it's just trying to, to frame the Biden administration as reckless and liberal and that these practices are widely accepted. Well, if they were widely accepted, why wasn't the Trump era rule in the Labor Department prohibiting these sorts of investments controversial? But the Biden department's reversal of this rule absolutely was. It set the place on fire. States are already restricted generally from allowing their treasuries to take unsound risks, which is what these are, with pension plans, retirement portfolios, and 401ks. I'm very glad that Congress weighed in here. It's unfortunate that the president has blocked them. But this isn't the end of this initiative. And it's a misuse, frankly, of the public, of public trust. Um, and uh, you know, essentially just telling, telling the financial industry that they need to make unsound decisions with retirees' investments. Uh, it's, it's criminally negligent. Um, and it's very ideological. And I don't know whether or not it's complicated, so I don't think it'll be a major political issue. But it really should be. So big test still to come with the debt ceiling. But House Republicans are actually off to a pretty good start. You had the success with the blocking the D.C. crime bill. And then you get this actually to Biden's desk with some bipartisan support. And, and the investigations have uh, produced some, some, some fruit or at least some good headlines for them. So Charlie, in his veto uh, message, Biden said this measure would put at risk the retirement savings of individuals across the country. This is just a perfect example of why so much of our politics is so profoundly stupid and dishonest. Joe Biden knows that everything Noah Rothman just said is true. He knows that he and his side and his party, with a couple of exceptions, want to use ESG to redirect this big pool of money into areas of which he and they approve. And he knows that this is likely to be unpopular and that it works against the interests of those who own that money. So what did he do in his veto message? He appropriated the argument of those who had tried to knock this down and pretended that it was the argument in favor of it. He said, how dare MAGA Republicans get in the way of the best financial decisions and risk management? And he named Marjorie Taylor Greene, as if this was her idea, as if there was not a bipartisan consensus in Congress against this, and said she doesn't get to decide how retirement funds are invested. This is remarkably dishonest. This is a corruption of language. This makes us all dumber. This reduces our capacity to debate issues. Biden took the language of ESG's critics and pretended that he was on their side and that the people who were opposed to ESG were the ones who were meddling and controlling and undermining fiduciary responsibility as traditionally understood. And when people do that in politics, it shows two things. First, they understand that their position is weak. Second, 
that they've given up trying to debate and are engaged only in the exercise of raw power, which is what this veto represents. So, Jim, speaking of uh, investment and finances, we still have the banking situation going on. The regional banks have have looked a little iffy, uh, especially First Republic. There are ongoing efforts as we speak to prop up First Republic. And actually this morning the market was up, and I think um, bank shares were um, going up. You had Credit Suisse, which has been a, a disaster uh, for a long time now, um, you had that that situation. Um, uh, I, I guess they what did they they bail it out, or a, a bunch of other banks came in and pumped liquidity into it. I'm not sure w- uh, what, but we've had this kind of ongoing, you know, not not a crisis, but certainly turmoil in the banks since the Silicon Valley Bank went went down. What do you make of it? So the good news, Rich, for all listeners, is that on St. Patrick's Day, uh, Biden had one of his exceptionally brief interactions with reporters before boarding Marine One. And he was asked, are you confident the bank, sir? Are you confident the bank crisis has calmed down? And Biden said, yes. That's a pretty ominous indicator, considering Biden's past statements that inflation will be transitory, that what we see at the border is just a routine seasonal pattern, and all of the other times that Biden has assured us that something bad is going to happen will not happen, uh, and then it has happened. Um, Several times per episode, Rich, you ask us, you know, what do you predict? Make a prediction on a scale of 1 to 10, how likely is it something is going to happen? And very often you'll hear Charlie and myself Sometimes MBD, we have Noah joining us. With some variation of, yeah, we don't know. We don't have a crystal ball. We don't know. You know, there's always the possibility of something unexpected happened. I will take. The, I could take the moment to recite the famous Donald Rumsfeld poem about known knowns and unknown unknowns. Um, the banking crisis seemed to come out of nowhere, or at least to most of us. If you, maybe if you're following this issue closely, if you're professionally tied to it, maybe you had some indicators this was coming. But to most Americans, it was this bank that, unless you're in California, you probably hadn't heard of, you know, overnight ran out of money. And all of a sudden, the U.S. government, which had always said through the FDIC, you're protected up to $250,000, was saying, ah, never mind. We got it all. Don't worry. We're covering everything. Yeah, every last cent of it. Which, as we discussed in a previous episode, you know, maybe you can justify that for defending the businesses. Very tough to justify that for all the people who had more than $250,000 in cash in a personal account. But hey, we got to make those Silicon Valley investors whole. We can't let them have any losses. Um, and then, of course, we had the situation with Signature Bank under the man, you know, with Barney Frank on its board of directors. And now there's this effort to save another bank. It appears for now we haven't seen any other banks runs, and maybe this is just going to be seen as a blip. Um, but I think this is just kind of another indicator that this is an administration that is, if not asleep at the wheel, drowsy, uh, and the problems will kind of pop up out of nowhere after assuring us that everything was fine. Their first instinct will be to insist that everything is fine. I think it didn't do any good to have Janet Yellen on the Sunday show's uh, a little more than a week ago, saying everything is fine, America. There's no reason for concern. All of your deposits are protected. And no, I can't answer any questions about any of these matters, <laughs> about what's going to happen with Silicon Valley Bank or with Signature Bank. Um, that is how this administration operates. And so I, you know, when Biden's saying, oh, don't worry, the bank crisis has calmed down, obviously that doesn't reassure anyone. 
And I don't know. Uh, I, I think we won't know for another month or another two months, another three months, whether there are other banks that are in, if not exactly the same circumstances as Silicon Valley Bank. Maybe they do have bad management. Maybe they have been putting too much into long-term bonds. Maybe they do have uh, insufficient cash reserves and things like that. I know it's very difficult for a bank to protect itself from a bank run because this is a uh, psychological phenomenon. It is a panic. People are not acting rationally. And the circumstances of everybody running to the bank trying to get their money out is what makes the bank, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy almost. But I don't have a lot of confidence that this this is all over and it's done with and everything's going to be smooth sailing between now and Election Day 2024. Yeah, so this is where I have a lot of sympathy, not not for all the um, policy mistakes that w- went into um, creating the environment where, where some of these banks are unstable. But w- once you get in- into this this situation where you have bank runs or, or semi-bank runs, it's just – it's hard to deal with and it doesn't matter who – who who is in office is just a an inherently difficult situation. So Charlie, speaking of difficult, let's go uh, difficult exit question to you. A, a benefactor. The exit question starts starts well though. A benefactor gives you a million dollars that must be invested. You can't just go out and and blow it at the the local bar. It has to be um, deposited in a bank somewhere. You would be comfortable putting that million dollars in a regional bank somewhere in the United States right now, yes or no? And I can't put it in four regional banks. No. One slug. I would not be comfortable, no. But that's not to say that I think the banking system is about to collapse. It's just that I have seen one two, three banks collapse and some smart people who know more than I do about this are saying this may not be over and I would have the option of putting that money into Wells Fargo, Chase, Citigroup or Bank of America which I think are pretty much inoculated against collapse and I would take that choice. No, comfortable or uncomfortable with your million dollar slug in a regional bank. Yeah, I, w- I would be uncomfortable, um, but only because I'm not connected. You know, if, <laughs> for real, if I had people in the administration, if I could make the case that my solvency was was very important to the stability of the of the U.S. economy, I wouldn't have a problem with it because there are no rules apparently now about what the the backstop is for FDIC. But no, I am not similarly connected. So, so Jim, I would have yeah, some no, no, feels uncomfortable unless he gets an additional million dollars to hire, hire a lobbyist <laughs> to make sure his other million is protected. Are you comfortable or uncomfortable? Yeah, to echo Noah, as long as I'm putting my money into important Democratic constituency bank, um, <laughs> yeah, that'll be fine. Uh, otherwise, if you have the option of taking that million dollars and putting it in four banks so that everything is at the at or below the the FDIC. Uh, threshold of $250,000. Why would you do that? <laughs> Why would you put a million dollars? There's a lot of stuff you could do with that money. That's basically saying, you know, if, even if the chance is 1% or less than 1%, if you split it up amongst a bunch of banks, the, the risk is 0%. That said, so that? I, I was told the other day that apparently the per depositor rule is somewhat malleable so that if I took that money and put a quarter of a million dollars in my name, a quarter of a million dollars in my wife's name, and then a quarter of a million dollars in a joint account to which we were both signatories, then I could get three quarters of the way there if there were a crisis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I would be uncomfortable. And 
Matt Iglesias, the progressive writer, had a good piece last week on this this banking problem, just pointing out the problem is really this this middle tier of regional banks. So small banks go out of business all the time, and they just get gobbled up by some other bank, you know, probably a regional bank, and it's it is not a problem. The FDIC kind of outsources uh, the problem to a regional bank, and and everyone's made whole, and things become secure again, and it's fine. It's just the regional banks are uh, a, a little too big um, for that to happen. Plus, you you worry because of their size. Um, at least some people worry. Regulators worry about too much consolidation. So it's just not it's not as easy as as gobbling up a failing. Um, small banks. So this, the, these regional banks that are uniquely the, the problem. And uh, no, I would not be comfortable uh, with that. Let me do a quick buck for NR Plus digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Your way around our metered paywall, your way to see 90% fewer ads when you sign up and log in, your way to dig deeper into our community and comment on our articles and blog posts and get invited to exclusive uh, calls and events with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures. They're great first-time deals running at any given moment. Won't cost you an arm and a leg. So please, today or tomorrow or the day after, join tens of thousands of your fellow National U readers as a member of NR+. And on top of everything, it's a really important way to support our valuable Journalism. So, Noah, there's been a lot of commentary on the Iraq war. We are, uh, um, the 20th anniversary is upon us here. There's a big symposium that's the cover story of the new print issue, pieces that cover the spectrum, uh, all perspectives. On Iraq, you are uh, <coughs> still um, basically a hawk on the the Iraq war. The, the headline of your piece was Mission Partly accomplished. So how should we think about this this venture two decades on? Well, as I tried to do in that piece, and one of my um, approaches to this conversation, which has a, a orbited around a consensus that the Iraq war was a mistake, but implicit in that consensus that the Iraq war should never have happened. And if we're going to do that, if we're going to envision some sort of an alternative history in which that doesn't happen, we're very far removed to this point to, to make any predictions with accuracy or confidence. But we can look to the region as it was in the decade prior to 2003, and it was not peaceful. We operated a no-fly zone over two no-fly zones over Iraq. It consisted of 280,000 sorties over the course of its nine-year lifespan, including uh, operated by the U.S., the U.K., and France. Uh, they were shot at. There were incidents. Uh, it was not peaceful. In 1993, 1996, and 1998, we had to engage in kinetic activity uh, targeting uh, Iraqi military sites in 1998 because they would not allow weapons uh, inspectors into sensitive sites. Sounds familiar. Um, after 9-11, there was quite a lot of heightened tensions. And uh, Democrats have retroactively conditioned the country into believing that they were always against the Iraq war. I find that laughable. Clinton-era National Security Council member Ken Pollack in a 2002 meeting, spring 2002, described the near-universal consensus among former UN weapons inspectors that Iraq was covertly enriching uranium. Everybody from Sandy Berger to Madeleine Albright to Nancy Pelosi, John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, all of them described the profound imminent threat posed by Saddam Hussein's regime in the post-9-11 environment. If we assume that they would have made up some of the members of an Al Gore administration, we can likely assume that there would have been a kinetic action against Saddam Hussein in response to 9-11, in response to his weapons activity, which was, again, consensus, opinion, among just about every allied government. Now, 
a lot of people don't have a problem necessarily with that. They have a problem with the, the uh, regime change operation. And a lot of mistakes were made. I wouldn't argue against that. I also don't think that it's especially valuable, in so, save for the fact that we will impose some caution on, on us in the future, which is warranted. I wouldn't disagree with that. But it also frustrates our effort to move forward if we were to perceive the, the idea that, or perceive our actions to have been only characterized by mistakes in Iraq. Iraq is better than it was under Saddam Hussein. Just about every measurable metric, life is better. And it doesn't even matter if you think that's irrelevant. It's better for us insofar as a, a region without Saddam Hussein is a better region for our national interests. We now have developed something that was fanciful 30 years ago, but was in the minds of critics of American foreign policy, which is some sort of a rapprochement between the Sunni states and Israel, and an alignment, a regional alignment against Iran. We're beginning to build that. Iraq is something of a stumbling block. But as we recently saw with the uh, Chinese-engineered uh, diplomatic breakthrough between Saudi Arabia and Iran, it is certainly preferable from a, the American perspective to see something like an Abraham Accords block develop in this region to advance our interests. If we were to simply disengage amid something akin to Vietnam War syndrome, we would sacrifice the opportunities that this presents us. Um, so I find, while a lot of the retrospectives valuable and the chastened commentary appropriate, and I could be duly chastened as well, but I don't see anybody looking towards the future based on the circumstances we've inherited, which seems to me the paramount question before any policymaker, which is always compared to what. So, Jim, Corey Shockey of AEI has a contribution to the symposium, and I, I think she puts her finger on the, the main thing that uh, I think distorted our view of Iraq clearly in, in retrospect, I, I undermine, uh, underline in retrospect. But it's true, as, as Noah says, you know, there are costs. We had a no-fly zone. Uh, we had troops in Saudi Arabia, which, um, you know, uh, Islamists hated and, and was one of the justifications uh, al-Qaeda had for launching attacks against all that, uh, against us. And we had fears of, you know, Saddam having weapons of mass destruction, which were you know, w well justified given the, the state of the evidence. We didn't think, I think, um, uh, enough about how we'd actually be able to deliver this stuff, at least uh, against us. But uh, all this was um, distorted by fear, just by by sheer fear that's, that's almost impossible to understand unless you lived through September 11th and that sense that there, there could be another attack any given um moment. And uh, th that's the, the key thing that I think distorted our decision making in, in Iraq. And the problem was we didn't know enough about Iraq um, to govern it uh, effectively. We made all sorts of mistakes based on our ignorance and on the challenge being much bigger than we uh, counted on. So uh, although there have been some upsides, as Noah points out, you know, you got sort of a, a ramshackle democracy in Iraq, you can kind of argue that we uh, broke the sword of Islamic terrorism in, in Iraq, not in the way we, we would have in, intended, but defeating al-Qaeda in Iraq, which sprung up in the chaos in the aftermath of the war, and then defeating uh, ISIS, which sprung up in the aftermath of Obama's very uh, ill-considered um, uh, all-out uh, complete withdrawal 
but this this in in retrospect with without that element of fear you would have would have done this i think entirely differently rich a couple of years ago a fairly well done movie came out called the report and it was all about the congressional investigation of cia black sites and waterboarding and you know what became colloquially known as the torture report uh you know, you, you could classify this movie as sort of uh, science fiction because it cast Annette Benning to play Diane Feinstein. And Diane Feinstein does not look like Annette Benning. But anyway, um, but the conclusion of this report was like, oh my God, the US did this on these black sites. What they did to these detainees was terrible. And how can it be that the American people do not care? And even though I don't necessarily agree with like the, 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 the perspective of the movie, I thought it was very well done. And I think it kind of danced around the reasoning, which was on September 12th, America told the government, Americans effectively told the government, make sure this never happens again. And there were no ifs, there were no ands, there were no buts, there were no asterisks, there was no indication of make sure this never happens again, but don't do this or don't do that. And, you know, it's fascinating to see, I guess it's less millennials than the oldest of Gen Z who did not, who have no living memory of 9-11 who have no idea what it was like to be in this country in late 2001 and 2002 and into 2003. So yeah, fear was a huge factor in this. And when you've seen thousands of people die in an instant, that will change your perspective on the amount of risk you're willing to live with. Um, now, there's a lot of legitimate criticism of the Iraq war, both the decision to invade and the management and the conduct of the war, Abu Ghraib, all that kind of stuff. I do notice you almost never see the Iraq critics really, gra Iraq war critics grap grapple with the consequences of not invading. What would Saddam Hussein have done if he remained in power? What would Uday and Kusay have done if they had come to power? Uh, I think we can all agree those bad things would happen. Would those bad things have been worse than the Iraq war? Would they have been comparable? Would they have been better? Kind of hard to believe that they're better, but some people may, you know, come to that conclusion. I think, you know, as I was looking looking through all these contributions to the really excellent issue we put together, I was thinking about summer of 2004. I have begun writing the Kerry spot for National Review, and I was down in Hilton Head Island with a bunch of friends. And we were these are left of center friends who were very anti-war, and we we're having this argument. And we did reach a certain point of agreement, which was. It was summer 2004 and America was still losing servicemen in Iraq. And I think Americans did not necessarily know they were in for that when the invasion was launched. Americans do not like nation building. Americans do not like long peacekeeping operations. Americans do not like the idea, we want to get in, we want to hit the enemy, and we want to get out. We want somebody else to handle the, the rebuilding process. It's long, it's messy, you end up fighting an insurgency. And there was kind of this recognition, probably the most legitimate criticism of the quote-unquote neocon philosophy is that it wants America to commit to projects that the American people do not have the patience or interest in. And at some point you have to, you know, the American people get a say. And it did not turn into an issue in 2004, but by 2006 it had become an issue. Barack Obama, if the, without the Iraq war, it's not clear Barack Obama would have been elected in 2008. Mm -hmm. or, so, or, or Donald Trump in 2016. Yeah, there are really long lasting consequences of this. And I think that 
this is, you know, neocons, they don't have to renounce everything they ever stood for. I think their ideals are correct. I think we should stand up to evil dictators. I think we should stand up for human rights. I think every dictator should lie awake night saying, oh God, what happens if the Americans get really pissed at me? There's no better moment than Bashir Assad begging Joe Klein to let, you know, tell Americans I don't have any weapons of mass destruction. You know, when we can strike fear to the hearts of evil brutes around the world, it's a good day. Um, but the recognition is, is that you can't drag America into a long-term nation-building commitment that it has no interest in doing. Yeah, and, and they weren't prepared for, for those kinds of uh, costs. And, and Charlie, the, 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 the Bush administration did become intoxicated with this ideological vision that was stated most starkly in the second inaugural address where we we're going to spread liberty uh, everywhere, not not instantly, but we're going to spread it everywhere, and that uh, our own liberty was dependent on the spread of of liberty everywhere. It was just, it just wasn't achievable, and it's it's not, and it wasn't wasn't true. I, oddly enough, agree with almost everything that's been said. I just draw a different conclusion from it. The idea, which has become popular in recent years and which is false that this was a republican war and that it was based upon republican ideas and supported by republican voters who shouted down the brave dissenters in the center and on the left is nonsense this was an american war George W. Bush's approval rating after 9-11 went up to 90%. There was a broad-based support for intervention abroad, and in particular in Iraq, many of the more famous progressive television personalities and broadsheet writers today were in favor of it. The American public was in favor of it to the tune of 70 to 75%, I think President Gore would have taken the same action and been cheered on by the same people in the New York Times and the Washington Post and beyond. I also agree that it is much easier to sit in judgment of a polity when times are peaceful or at least less alarming than it is in the aftermath of a disaster. Uh, not a disaster, that's the wrong word, of a travesty such as 9-11. But I have taken from this the lesson that this is why it is important not to be hasty, not to allow transient fear or mob mindsets to prevail and to, where possible, allow institutions to cool the saucer rather than to indulge the impetus. Yeah, you, you make a great point. I mean, if we'd waited a year, say, I, I don't think we would have done it. I don't either. And... I'm not just talking about the decision to go in. I'm talking about the way in which we did it. For example, we passed an open-ended AUMF that is just about now 
being pulled apart. We didn't say here is a one-year authorization or a two-year authorization and that it will sunset and require debate. And I am not exempting myself from this. I will to some extent exempt myself from this question because I was 16 when 9-11 happened. I was profoundly affected by it. And I was not a critic or a skeptic of American foreign policy because I was scared. I wouldn't, though, call myself some sort of defender or champion for the war. I, I didn't engage in politics in quite that way. But I learned a great deal of my skepticism and a great deal of my respect for the American system of government from Iraq, oddly enough, because I think that it is a good thing that in most circumstances, that one was was an exception. In most circumstances, the American constitutional order does slow down the mob. It does slow down the bloodlust. Uh, we see this to the great chagrin of many progressives after, say, a mass shooting. Uh, we see this uh, w when we have these cultural explosions, as we did after the Ferguson incident in was it 2015, during the uh, woke summer uh, of 2020, the, the slow moving wheels of the American order help, and they didn't hear. And I took away from it that you had a bipartisan desire to do something in the wake of a genuine travesty where people were genuinely scared, including myself. And it didn't work out. Yeah. So, no, what, what Charlie says is absolutely correct how bipartisan this was. And it's not as though Bush went and did it unilaterally without going to Congress. He, he, he went to, to Congress. A lot of people on the right that uh, speak very disparagingly of neocons and hawks now, you can see the video of, of them supporting this at the time, you know, supporting the, the surge, you know, supporting the war fa fairly late in the game. But let me ask you this exit question. Clearly, this is the experience at Iraq is the backdrop to the internal debate on the right about Ukraine, where I think a lot of people regret their support for Iraq or think it was a disaster and therefore, you know, kind of want to take it out on the Ukrainians. We're not even going to spend money in Ukraine because of that. So the next question is the non-interventionist in the short to medium term here will carry the day and define conservative foreign policy in their terms going forward, yes or no? No. And I look to the way in which Americans responded to the rise of ISIS for guidance. Um, there was very little frustration or hostility towards Barack Obama for executing a precipitous full withdrawal of American forces from Iraq in 2011, right up until the moment that Americans started having their heads lopped off. And it only took two, at which point mm -hmm. American public yes. opinion turned on a dime, and we had to go back in at a time and place not of our choosing. I would add... Um, briefly to the idea that had we waited, for example, to, for 2004 to engage with Iraq as opposed to 2003, that it might never have happened. Well, perhaps. But 2003 was a wait. We started talking about Iraq before we were in Afghanistan. I'm old enough to remember 
when George W. Bush waited until the end of October of 2001 to engage in hostilities in Afghanistan, and there was public outcry from the left and the right. Everybody wanted to see something happen yesterday. And the fact that we were deliberating for all of a month was a big controversy. Likewise, George W. Bush started making the case against the, the threat posed by Iraq in early 2002. In October of 2002, he delivered a speech outlining the course of action that he wanted to take. It was only six months later that he actually took that course. So the idea here that there was no deliberation involved in this process, or that it was frankly uh, hostily received by the public and everybody you know, wanted him to slow down, is just false. No, it wasn't. It's revisionist uh, of history. it wasn't hostilely received by the public. He was egged on by the public. He was the tribune of the people. I won't criticize George W. Bush as if he was the villain of the piece. I'm suggesting that this worked the other way around, that he was responding to a public outcry and that this taught me that public outcries are very often ill-advised. Well, then you're quite correct. And we can look to the to that lesson for the future when Americans are directly threatened. Uh, American not not just national interests, but Americans American lives are threatened. And we will see an entirely different set of calculations take the place of any uh, retrospection on our experience in Iraq. Sure, although there is a big difference here, and that is that many of the examples that you mentioned involved Americans being harmed and the countries in question representing direct threats to the United States. But in the case of Iraq, it was something of a red herring relative to 9-11, which was carried out by 19 Saudi Arabians uh, who were led by a guy who was hiding in Afghanistan. Right. Well, the 9-11 report demonstrates the extent to which Iraq supported terrorists training in sub-Saharan Africa or Saharan Africa. So it's neither here nor there. As it relates to Ukraine, then yes, Americans are not directly threatened. But American interests are, and American interests so far have, uh, those who say we should defend American interests so far are winning the debate. Charlie Cook, non-interventionists will prevail, yes or no? Well, I suppose that depends what you mean by non-interventionists. There's a spectrum, I think, between isolationists and Bill Crystal, and I hope that we can find some position on it that is rational. The non-interventionists deserve to lose because the United States is a country in the world. It has military adversaries, and it has economic interests everywhere. So, of course, we need from time to time to intervene, whether or not we intervene as enthusiastically as we did in Iraq is a separate question. I think that insofar as non-interventionist means people who have learned the lessons of Iraq, yes, I think they will prevail and they'll deserve to. So Jim Garrity, non-interventionist, let's loosely define it as kind of the, the J.D. Vance mindset, as, as we, we see exemplified in uh, the Ukraine debate? I have a short answer and then just one point I think has got to be thrown into this. The short answer is yes until uh, China invades Taiwan. At some point, the world beyond our shores is going to throw some problem that directly affects American lives, you know, maybe in terms of life and death, maybe in terms of intense, you know, geopolitical and economic threats. You know, at some point, something's going to happen in which all of a sudden America, you know, we'll have another Pearl Harbor. 
we'll have some other incident that will be so bad. Like, oh, well, I guess we got to, we can't go back to, we can't ignore the world anymore. We got to go back to, you know, our traditional 20th century role of saving the world from itself. Um, but you mentioned about how, whether the Iraq had kind of fueled the non-interventionist, you know, attitude on the right. And I think that was a big chunk of it, but I don't think we should ignore Afghanistan and the degree to which the U.S. spent 20 years pouring blood and treasure into trying to stand up a decent government uh, there. And, you know, every kind of potential economic development and uh, opening up schools and training people to have, tra- you know, just, just everything conceivable. And then very quickly over the summer, it fell apart. We can do, there's been a lot of finger pointing over this. I think it's kind of hard to say once you've trained the Afghan army to work with the Air Force and then you say, hey, we're taking away your Air Force. It's not surprising that they would fall apart uh, in the face of the Taliban. Um, I think that's the most direct uh, uh, you know, consequence of all that stuff. But I think they see so much effort put into Afghanistan and to see it collapse so quickly and so rapidly and to see those bastards running away with money who are running the government. I think a lot of Americans said, what's the point of all this? Why should we ever help these people? And it's very tough to have those arguments. Rich, can, can yeah. I just make yeah. one more distinction sure. here? Because I, I don't know if he meant to do this directly, but Jim just mentioned the prospect of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan in the context of your question about non-interventionists. And I want to distinguish between non-interventionists who are opposed to preemptive American engagement, which was what Iraq was by the admission of those who organized it, and American involvement in the world in response to an invasion. And we saw a difference in reaction between the American intervention in Iraq in the first Gulf War, which was the response to the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, and the American invasion of Iraq the second time around, which was not. And I think this is why it's really important to define non-interventionist, because there would be a much clearer case for American involvement in the world if China invaded another country, (laughs) just as there is after Russia having invaded uh, another country, as it did in Ukraine. Uh, the Iraq experience was different precisely because, notwithstanding what was written in the 9-11 report, Iraq hadn't actually done the sort of things that countries normally have to do for people and the world order to say, okay, fine, we'll go and help them. Yeah, so uh, despite the the loose definitions at work here, I don't think the interventionists are going to prevail. Non-interventionists are going to prevail, but they they are going to make much more progress. So this this is just uh, foreign policy be a a major division on on the right uh, going going forward. So with that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim Garrity... You went to see Pacific Overtures. Yes. Uh, this Earlier this month, my wife's birthday you know, desire was to uh, go to the theater, have her, myself, her, and our two teenagers to dress up, have a nice dinner, and then go out to the theater. And if you're not – it says over at the Signature Theater in Shirlington. And if you're in the D.C. area and you're not familiar with it, it is a small theater. It is not – big and grandiose. It's almost a uh, like a peninsula type, you know, stage and the actors are 
coming up the aisles and parts of the set are coming out from behind uh, behind you. That's kind of like almost you're in and surrounded by the performance. It was excellent. I, I was thrilled. We've been to a couple uh, couple plays and musicals over at the Signature Theater, and this was excellent. Um, you know, it didn't help, it didn't hurt that the second act features samurai and lots of stage fighting and lots of exciting stuff to keep my you know my uh, my sons thrilled. But uh, this was a you know good good night at the theater. If you're in the DC area, it's still running for a bit, so you might want to check that out. Awesome. So Noah, there's been a shocking leak in the Rothman household. Who's been talking to Maggie Haverman this time? Not that kind of leak. I wish it was that kind of leak. Unfortunately, if it was that kind of leak, I would have never found it um, under my kids' vanity. Uh, there's some pipes that have just looked like they were about to just disintegrate for a long time. So I was doing some preventative maintenance, had my handyman come in and replace some of those pipes. All good, right? So seven days later, my wife goes down to the basement to try to look for some St. Patrick's Day stuff, and there's just water cascading down the walls. It turned yeah. out a, a compression valve was just not turned right, just one more turn, and then it ended up just accumulating in my walls. Sounds like a bad light item, right? Well, the whole universe comes out. You know, I get my neighbors to help. I get my handyman to help. Everybody tries to do what they can to, to make good. And it was just an affirmation of, uh, you know, that you're in the in the right place and the universe comes out and helps you when, when oh, unexpected things go bad, which was actually very heartening. It's a lot to pay to reorganize my pantry, but all Water is the, the worst. I mean, oh, I, I've never lived in a place that didn't have water uh, problems, including basement apartments and even a fifth-floor apartment. We tried to get above the water level in Jersey City because it kept coming to us, and then a pipe bursts above us uh, in my fifth-floor apartment uh, and forces us to evacuate. Water, water plagues us. Water, among other things, is extremely heavy. This was brought home to me. I was moving my mom out of um, the house where, where she had lived for for 50 years, our fa family home, and there was a um, plumbing problem in, in the basement, and there was this this small leak. You know, there's a, there's this uh, pipe that no one had had uh, you know touched in like you know 50 years, and someone touched it, and then just a little drip drip started. And um, I, I wasn't there full time, but I was, I was coming in and out um, fairly frequently every couple of days. So I'd, I'd get a tub like under this pipe where there's just a little drip was going. And, you know, over the course of days, it, it'd fill up this tub and just carrying this thing. It wasn't a huge tub, just carrying it out of ba the basement into the backyard to dump it out. It was like just uh, um, uh, quite, quite the, the burden. So, so leaks are no good. Uh, le leaks to, to Maggie Haberman are better than uh, a leak in your, your walls. So Charlie, on a happier note, you took the family to Universal Studios. Yeah, my now seven-year-old, wow, had been asking for a while to go to Universal Studios and we being egged on as well by my five-year-old who had seen somehow a commercial for a Jurassic Park ride, which Universal has. He's hugely into dinosaurs. So we got the full court press and we said, sure, why not? We took them for the weekend. It was actually fantastic. I hadn't been there for 14 years. I don't know why we got into the habit of going to Disney World instead. But the particular highlight was the two Harry Potter sections in the two parks that they have there. They have these three fantastic Harry Potter themed rides. Two of them are roller coasters. And then they have the train, the Hogwarts Express that goes between them. And you get to go on the train. And there's a, I won't give it away. But it, you know my penchant for spoilers. Really. Mm -hmm. 
Well, no, it really was absolutely fantastic. It was just such a great weekend. So, you know, everyone knows I'm a big fan of Disney World, but uh, you can add Universal Studios to the list. So speaking of Orlando, I think we may have briefly overlapped in uh, Orlando, unbeknownst to the both of us, I went down there Sunday and gave a, a lunchtime talk on uh, Monday, yesterday, to uh, House Republican uh, retreat. Uh, lots of Republican members of, of Congress down there, most of them down there, and just a lot of good folks. I mean, the House is such a, a representative uh, institution in, in every sense. You just meet people from all over the country, from all walks of of life who uh um almost all of them are are in it for the the right reason and it's uh, a lot of fun and kind of inspiring to meet them all with that it's time for our editor's picks jim garrity what's your pick rich i could pick the work of jimmy quinn every week he probably is one of our uh most underappreciated contributors here on the all beat of all things related to china uh, and the you know the topic of TikTok is really you know heating up. There is you know bit by bit it becomes more and more plausible to envision the U.S. government banning TikTok completely, not just banning it from government devices. Uh, Jimmy's latest is new report reveals TikTok parents extensive sh- links to the Chinese military surveillance complex. Uh, you know the short version is TikTok is every bit as bad as you think it is. Um, check it out. Keep on track of what Jimmy Quinn is doing. It's just really good reporting on probably. Uh, the most important, if not the most important issue of our time, then definitely it's up there. And it's one of those things where we may find ourselves in the future saying, hey, we should have paid more attention to this back then. No, Rothman, what's your pick? My pick is Madeline Kearns, uh, Dylan Mulvaney, and the Cruelty of Flattery. It's very well done. Um, Dylan Mulvaney, if you don't know this individual, is a transgendered individual whose act, and it is an act, is essentially the gendered equivalent of minstrelsy. He mimics and uh, lampoons a caricatured idea of what women are and how they behave and has become the face of a transgendered movement. The, the news hook here is an appearance that he did on, or she did, on Drew Barrymore's show um, where she, Drew Barrymore gets down on her knees and like, you know, just, just uh, cannot, you know, so bad. cannot just express her appreciation for the work <laughs> this person has done. He's been to the Biden White House. I mean, it's, it's just obscene that this has become the face of this movement. It doesn't know. Dylan no should replace whoever that, who is the official had to resign for stealing the luggage? Oh, um, uh, yeah, blocking on his name. Yeah. But yeah, Sam so it's Brinton. a person who steals people's luggage and, and just behaves as flamboyantly as possible is clearly dealing with psychological issues. I don't want to say mental issues, because I don't know, but psychological issues. And we elevate these individuals and treat treat what is bizarre, eccentric behavior as though it's this rare species of genius. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. not. Charlie? I'm going to take your piece, Rich. A second Trump administration would be bonkers. That is the right word, bonkers. I've been covering Trump a little bit over the last few months, and I think people have not quite realized just how completely crazy the man is, more crazy than he was before. And your preview of a second Trump presidency is equal parts informative and depressing. Well, thank you, Charlie. But I, I, uh, I can't hold a candle to you in portraying Trump as as bonkers. Uh, you know, I didn't have a reference to him uh, talking to himself, walking alone in a park and bare bare feet, or whatever whatever the uh, 
the, the, the numerous uh, such uh, metaphors you had in, in one of your last uh, Trump pieces, but I, I appreciate it anyway. My pick is an MBD piece, uh, again, on the topic of Trump. Count Trump out at your own peril, just making the case that anyone who thinks he, he's inevitably going to lose if he's the nominee, he's obviously a riskier choice, but it's a divided country, and it's going to be somewhere in there, like 40, 50 percent chance, depending on um, circumstances. I was talking to a plugged-in Republican who was just saying every every time he talks to donors who, you know, almost to a man and a woman now, have turned against Trump, he's like, you're underestimating his chance of winning the nomination, and let me just emphasize, you're underestimating his chance of uh, winning the presidency, and the, the second term would, it, would indeed, as Charlie and I were just discussing, be bonkers. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or account this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thanks to Charlie. Thanks to Noah. Thanks to Jim. Thanks to Ball and Branch Sheets. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.